Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Today I'm going to do a podcast about Jurgen Klopp. Now, on paper, the season that Liverpool have had has been nothing short of phenomenal. You know, 97 points, their record total, they've only lost once in the league. And they're now in the Champions League final for the second year in a row, this time entering as presumptive favourites. And yet, any form of criticism in that regards to Liverpool season is hypercritical. In other words, you know, if Vincent Company's shot against Leicester hits the bar instead of the top corner, Liverpool would be champions for the first time in 30 years. They would be on course for a double. But to sit there and just effectively give Jurgen Klopp a sort of A star, I think it misses the, the underlying point. 97 points is fantastic on paper, but we're now entering a stratified era. The points totals are going to go up for this sort of hybrid top six. And really, at the moment, what you're looking at is it's a lot more closer to a sort of top two. In other words, you know, Chelsea with their upcoming transfer ban, Arsenal's you know, general lack of funds in comparison with the rest, the constraints on Tottenham in terms of their budget, and the, just the ongoing mess that is Manchester United Football Club, is that really you've only got two clubs right now that are able to fire on all cylinders, and that's Manchester City and Liverpool. I think it's important to note that Liverpool getting 97 points and not winning a title, this isn't going to be an outlier. This isn't just a freak season where two teams just ran away with it. This is going to be the new usual. And so as a result, I think it's important as a starting point to really look at Liverpool's league form and what does it tell us. It's 97 points and it's fantastic and it's one that makes them one of the best Premier League teams of all time. But were they ever dominant? I mean, it's it's a strange way to get to 97 points. 30 wins, 7 draws, 1 defeat. And a lot of those draws being sort of nil-nil. It's, it's consistent rather than overtly dominant. Whereby if you look at you know Manchester City's last two seasons, you know, last year they got 100 points. That was just dominance. That was being, you know, scoring lots of goals, being very strong at home, being strong away, getting wins. There was defeats in it, but they were clearly, you know, the consensus best football team in the country by a distance. This year they have been matched, and they they have really sort of one or they have really sort of one bad kind of run in around sort of December January time. Other than that, they were dominant, and they ended the year in just. Fabulous form. 14 wins in a row. Pretty much last season they did sort of 18 wins in a row. It's not just luck. This is what that team can do. And they can score lots of goals. Defensively, they're pretty tight. They've got goals from different areas. Whereby with Liverpool, you know, defensively they were fantastic. And as an attacking outfit on their day, they can score lots of goals. They can be very dynamic. But this year... It wasn't quite the same. It wasn't... At no point did you ever get the feeling that Liverpool 
had just take had gone for it had just basically held to level we will just push forward we will get goals we will dominate teams it was a lot more it was controlled it was basically and i think the the prevailing sense that i get when i look at this liverpool team was it it wasn't a team that was going to make the big mistake that was it that there was going to be no slip there was going to be no time there was going to be no crystal palace away there wasn't going to be a, a chelsea at home situation this liverpool team was not going to lose the title off of one of their own mistakes and as a result it's a strangely timid kind of team when we think of jürgen klopp teams we think heavy metal football we think gen gen pressing we think going for it and just very bright very you know power kind of football you know with anfield completely you know a cauldron of atmosphere going at teams and just tearing them apart and this team didn't really ever mean to do that it was far more you know considered and i think that's just a handful of these games i know you know the i think everton away you know man city at home man city man united away they very much laid up. It was very much, you know, especially the, I think, Manchester United away. You know, at that time, we'd obviously had that period of time where, you know, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had come in and the team had just coalesced around the sort of happy thoughts and were playing really well. And yet, by the time that you got to that Man United away game, the luster would, was starting to fade a little bit. You know, in other words, you know, their performances were getting more patchy. This was a somewhat vulnerable United team. It wasn't as if they hit, they played United in the middle of that confidence run where Pogba was scoring, Rashford was scoring, you know, and just there was a wave of positivity. The fans were getting behind it. And, you know, they were just happy for the first time in really years, you know, where they felt that they had someone who was in charge, who was Manchester United through and through. And when it came down to it, there was there was two minutes of injury time, and it was you just got that sense that Liverpool were terrified that the ball would fall to like Rashford, he would sprint through, and they would have lost the title at Old Trafford. And even to the same extent, you know, when they were at Everton away, again it was a scrappy, sort of difficult kind of game, but at no point did you get the feeling that Liverpool were going to risk losing that at 1-0. In other words, they'd much rather take the 0-0, which then, to an extent, leaves... really means that what Liverpool were trying to do was wait for Man City to make a mistake. And this Man City team, you can't... If we were talking about the, the 90s or the early 2000s, maybe even five, six years ago... Teams weren't capable of winning 14 games in a row in terms of the, the squad depth, in terms of just that level of winning week in, week out. There wasn't so much of a gap between mid-table, lower mid-table and the bottom six. Teams, even you know the great Man United team of the 90s and early 2000s, didn't have that level of capability. Even, you know... 
Chelsea under Mourinho the first time around, Mourinho 1.0. You know, they were they were good, they were great, but there were still draws. There was still the sense that you couldn't just sit there and say from late February on to the end of the season that they were just going to win out. That wasn't something that teams could put down with any degree of confidence. There was always a sense that there could you that you would drop points somewhere. And I think one of the the underlying things that I found quite interesting, you almost got the feeling that when they made the draw for the Champions League quarter-final, that Liverpool assumed Man City would beat Tottenham, would go through, and that they would either play Juventus or Ajax in the semis, and that they would go... I think Man City... They, I think Liverpool really believed that Man City would go at least to the semi-finals, if not the final of the Champions League, and as a result of those extra games, the pressure and the desire that Man City had to win the Champions League would mean that they would drop points. And that's a very, to me, that's a very strange way of, I suppose, looking at a, a league title season. And I think also you have to factor in that I don't think Liverpool are ever going to ha- quite have the same year that, that, that they've had this year. You know, they're, I don't think they're going to have a year where with so few injuries. Really, the only person I can think of the top of my head that missed any sort of long period of time was really Joe Gomez. And, you know, the difference is, is that he's a right-back, so centre-half. They've had Trent Alexander-Arnold, so they haven't really lost anything at right-back. And there's been enough, you know, Matip's had a decent season, you still have Lovren, and you've had Virgil van Dijk, and Robertson's had a great year, Allison's been a solid keeper, and... Effectively, you know the second Liverpool centre half. As you know, all you have to be is at least six to seven out of ten every week, and the surrounding, you know, and also with the depth that they've now got in sort of centre midfield with Cater, Fabinho, with Henderson, with Milner, means that there wasn't as much scrutiny as I think previous Liverpool centre halves. If you think sort of Colatore during the Rogers era, you know. And when, you know, before, and any time before Van Dyke, when, you know, any time that mattered, any time that Lovren made a mistake, you know, which was always, it's, whenever they made a mistake, it always then put more pressure on Mignolet. You know, delving into sort of the statistics, things like expected goals, there, there is an underlying sense that Liverpool this season have outperformed by somewhere in the vicinity of 5 to 10 points their underlying statistics. So in other words, really we're looking at a 85 to 90 point team that's got some 97 points. And you, you, there's an element of luck to it. You know, you've had the Origi goal against Everton. You know, 95th minute, they punted the ball in the air and the keeper has made an absolute horror mistake and gifted Origi a goal. You know, you have the Alderweireld own goal, you know, at home to Spurs. Now they've had several other games. You know, you could say the um, Newcastle away game where you know they got a fairly fortunate free kick in the eighty-six minute. You know, they've had a fair amount of luck this season. Now I will also caveat that to say yes, they have been lucky. I mean, you can even take the Tottenham away game. They, I mean, they absolutely destroyed us. We were in no position to challenge them, and they should have been fours, five, six nil up, 
and they weren't. They were 2 0 up, we got a late goal, and in the last minute, Son goes into the box and gets tripped, and the referee misses it, doesn't give the penalty. Now, if assuming obviously that you know they, if Spurs had got a penalty, they'd buried it, it would have been a miracle point. We wouldn't have deserved it. But that's just the sort of situation that Liverpool have had this year. They haven't had injuries. They've had late goals. They've had you know moments of freak luck that you don't get every single season and that you couldn't rely upon. While this you know Klopp Liverpool team have pushed on you know they've had great seasons from Robertson from Alexander Arnold and they haven't given up at the same time I don't think they're going to get as many goals in the last 10 minutes next season as this year and I think the problem that you've now got is is that it may well be that you'd imagine that Tottenham are probably going to get better assuming that they keep Pochettino assuming that they spend some money you know Man City have a transfer budget and they're going to improve. They're obviously now trying to get, you know, kick on in Europe. They have massively underperformed in Europe. You know, if Arsenal get into the Champions League by winning the Europa League, their budget goes up exponentially. And, you know, another year of away from Wenger and another year where Unai Emery would then have the ability to start shaping this Arsenal team into... You know, there's obviously, they've got talent in, you know, up front. You know, they've got some young players. There is something to work with. And you can imagine them getting better. Man United are going to spend some money, whether that works or not. And obviously with Chelsea, you've got the transfer ban. Whether, but there's a sense that the top six, you know, the bottom four of the top six, all had issues this season that really prevented them from ever kicking on. You know, and I think Tottenham were massively affected by the World Cup. And if you look at it, I think Liverpool, you know, that with the African Cup of Nations now moving to being a summer tournament as opposed to a winter tournament, there's a chance that, you know, obviously someone like Marnier, possibly Cater, might well be affected by that Salah for Egypt. There's no guarantees that I think Liverpool, as they are currently playing with the tight defence, but you know, an element of playing at third gear in terms of going forward, whether they can, the way how they're playing. In other words, I think to get the defence as tight as they have done, you know, 22 goals in a, either 22 or 23 goals in a 38-game season, is that they've had to therefore clamp down a little bit on their attacking. Uh, So in other words, and this is really what it comes down to, and I think what we also have to really work out is that this Liverpool team, it's a little bit, reminds me of the Tottenham team a couple of years ago, the one that got to 86 points. And it was difficult really to see quite where you could improve the, the actual first 11. So in other words, you had sort of Ericsson getting 10 to 15 goals, you had 20 goals in all competitions from Son, from Deli Ali, you had 20 goals from Harry Kane, and it was... Sort of 20, 30 goals from Harry Kane. And it was just hard to see, really, unless you were going to spend 70, 80 million pounds on a player, quite where you could get a player that was going to be able to actually fit in and get into the first team. Because I think sometimes trying to buy backup players can be very difficult. If you look at Shakiri this season, you know, there were moments when his transfer looked inspired. It was 12 million pounds, he can 
you know, he can play off the striker, he can play on the wing, he can play in the hole, you know, he can come off the bench, he can score goals, he can set up goals, he's got pace, he's got trickery. And in the end, by the but the, the end point was, is that for the last three months of the season, he has barely played a minute. In other words, he was a complete afterthought. And it's, it's not an obvious place that you can sit there and say that... Liverpool can get massively better. You say, okay, maybe a, another centre-half. You think maybe you can get an upgrade on Shakiri, maybe another striker. But it's all very marginal. It's all, you might get a point here, you might, you know, there, there's no guarantee whereby I think with Man City, in, if you look at their budget, there's obvious places where they can get better. They probably do need more depth in terms of defence in midfield so they're not so overly reliant on Fernandinho. There's always the, it is the question of whether Mendy can get fit or whether Zinchenko can really kick on and become a world-class uh, left-back. There's a sense that they might get another centre-half or you know, because John Stones hasn't quite developed as we were expecting. He's still got the potential, but they might bring in another you know, centre-half, if, especially if company leaves. And then you think, well, they're looking to get another sort of midfield or attacking player. They might get another striker in. But, you know, they're only, you know, you've obviously now going to have another year of Phil Foden. And there's a couple of other of their young players that are on the sort of verge of breaking through. Whereby, I think if you look at Liverpool's young players in terms of Wilson, Woodburn... I think outside of Wilson, who I think has had a really great season at Derby, I don't see... I think Woodburn's had a bit of a, a lost year. You know, Ryan Kent, I don't think is going to get into a Liverpool squad. It's not quite... Whereby two years ago, there was this underlying sense that Liverpool were going to have an injection of quality young players. I don't think that's going to happen as much. And even if they did have Wilson next year... I don't know how much playing time he's going to get, what sort of role he's going to be given. So, I think my, and if you look at it, I think in Europe, they, relatively speaking, they had a fairly, I wouldn't say an easy draw, but in terms of the group stages and in terms of in the later stages, there's no guarantee that next season they might have a lot harder group. So really what I'm getting at is that I think Man City could probably will average somewhere between 95 to 100 points. And I don't think that there's an easy way that I can see Liverpool matching that with the way how they're currently playing. I think they draw too many games and I think they're slightly unbalanced. And I think that it's going to be very difficult to maintain the underlying numbers so that Liverpool have outperformed so well this season. I think this year really was the year that they should have kicked on. And it's really questioning the hows and whys of it and really the, the extent that Klopp plays in that. From talking to... I've got quite a few friends who are Liverpool fans and I think the interesting talking to them was that... They were always very strong on underlying that they've how well they've done and that it was only one defeat. It was on there was almost an a sense 
that they were content that they didn't lose the league. That there was something, you know, it is easy to sit there and say, you know, tip of the cap to Man City, they're a fantastic outfit. You know, they had to absolutely, they've absolutely pushed Man City to the, to the limit. And yet, I think this is my question, my point would be that if you'd given that squad at the start of the season to Brendan Rodgers, I think it's a counterfactual point, but I think you would definitely have, you wouldn't have any doubt that that team would have gone for it. I don't think that team would have conceded 22 goals. I think they probably conceded 32, but I think they'd have been a lot closer to getting 100 goals. And I don't think they would have drawn games nil nil. I don't think they would have drawn seven games. And I think, and that's my point is that a lot of what Jurgen Klopp it's a real. I suppose the key question is is what does Jurgen Klopp actually do? That may sound like a a stupid thing to sort of say, but actually, well, you know, you you know what he does. So it's you know you he improves the fitness due to you know the importance of pressing. In other words, if you don't press you're not going to make it a Liverpool. In other words, that's one of the things that Lallana had to do. He had to, you know, up his fitness, he had to up his, you know, mentality in terms of what he was doing from, in terms of the press, in terms of defending from the front. And that's really where Daniel Sturridge never quite got it. And was it seemed unlikely to ever, you know, fully engage into that ethos. You know, he allows, you know, talented players to, you know, express themselves. It's attractive. It's heavy metal football. You know, he creates a bond with the fans. It's all very together. But my point would be that the he, he only seems to work at the same sort of clubs. In other words, I, I always considered Borussia Dortmund and Liverpool to be sister clubs in in all but name. You know, they both have the, you know, you've got the cop, you have the yellow wall, you have they they both sing you'll never walk alone. They there's both of those clubs have a viewpoint of themselves as being exceptionalist. You know, that they are different to every other sort of outfit out there. And what I would say is is that he has, he you know, he has, he had that amazing bond with the Dortmund fans. He has this amazing bond with the Liverpool fans. But these clubs already had that prior to him rocking up, and I think he's trying to something that was already there in that regards. And I think, to some extent, it's for all of the the cuddliness of it, and all of you know how you know from the outside looking in. Sometimes you, I imagine. Sort of football fans, you know, being a little bit jealous of Liverpool and especially under Klopp, it's a sense that you know here's this is this very personable manager. You know, he's very passionate. You know, he's very close with the fans. The fans are close with the team. The team are close with the fans. You have these glory nights, you know, European nights at Anfield where just bonkers things tends to happen, and that he understands the club. And yet, if you then compare it to, let's say, Chelsea fans under Sari, you can imagine that there is some sense that, you know, yeah, it's... But there's also a sense that for all of the, I suppose, positive PR that comes from it, and, you know, is that it, it's feeding off negative emotions. 
In other words, with Liverpool, you've got the, the title drought. You've got the inferiority complex with you know, Manchester United and Manchester City. And you know, with Dortmund you have with Dortmund you have Bayern. You have that inferiority complex. You know, the sense that you're always battling against the odds, that the you know, Bayern and Manchester City and Manchester United are the evil empire and you know, Liverpool and Dortmund are the, the plucky resistance. And with Dortmund, you know, that there's the, there was the financial difficulties that put them into that position that they had from the you know, breakdown of German football due to the broadcaster going under. And their huge debts from, you know, really trying to buy their way back to that sort of late 90s success when they won the European Cup. Now... That's self-inflicted to an extent, and you when when analysing Jurgen Klopp, you have to give him a, a tremendous amount of credit for what he did at Dortmund. Yes, he built on what was already there in terms of you know the atmosphere at Signal and Duna Park and yeah the Westfalen Stadium, the the yellow wall, and you know the other people were then built off of that. But it, it's something that's relatively easy to replicate. In other words, you know, when he left, you then had Thomas Tuchel, and who basically followed the the Jurgen Klopp process. So in other words, you know, hadn't had much of a career. You know, got into management quite early, managed at Mainz, then took that to Borussia Dortmund, and then had some success. I mean, Tuchel is a different character emotionally, but the football was relatively similar, and the. Um, the sense that Dortmund had to rely on youth and also buying young players is something that you know obviously Klopp utilised, but it's been able to be carried on. Much in the same way that if you look at what he's done at Liverpool, I think that if you take the job that he's done and if you compare it with Rodgers and Benitez, I would argue that he probably had the easier job out of all three of them, in the sense that Rogers basically rocked up when there was no money, when there was, again, no guarantee. You know, you obviously had the Hicks-Gillette nightmare in Brolio, where basically they were running Liverpool into the ground, they had no money, and he really had to then build off of that. And there wasn't a huge amount of transfer money, he had to... And there was no European football, they were behind... And he then had to then build them up, get them to play a style of football, and really took them you know, very close to winning the league. You know, with Benitez, he built off of the work off of he built off of Gerard Houllier's work, but the Gerard Houllier Liverpool's team never really competed at the top level. In other words, they were able to win the UEFA Cup, they were able to win the League Cup, the FA Cup. They had that sort of magical sort of 2001 treble winning team. But it's the minor treble. And what Benitez had to do was really strengthen the mentality of the team so that they weren't just competing at the kind of plate level. That it was really around you know, competing in the Champions League, qualifying for the Champions League on a yearly basis and then competing up against, you know, Manchester United head-to-head. -head. 
and you know, his Liverpool team finished second. And they, again, they were unlucky to really miss out that year. They didn't lose that many games. You know, they played some fabulous stuff. He took them to a Champions League final and he, you know, won it, took them to another Champions League final. And really, you know, it's, it's a great what if for football if basically they had competent ownership and he had been allowed to have the money that you know he would need to compete with the likes of Chelsea's, you know, Arsenal and Manchester United. And so, again, it, my question would be is, had you given the squad that he has this year to Benitez, what, what would have Benitez done to it? You know, would Benitez have been able to maintain the, the defensive solidity but would he have found a way to utilise those players in a way that would mean that they were more fluent going forward? In other words, for a team that you know, scored the second highest amount of goals in, the, in this season, there was a lot of games, especially at home, where they didn't score that many goals. You know, there's just too many nil-nils for there to be, for you to classify this team as a great attacking team. You know. It's, a, it's an interesting one, and I, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to it, but you know, has Jurgen Klopp, tactically speaking, changed? There's been a lot of focus on that this Liverpool team are a bit more consistent, and yet I'm not sure that it, it is entirely sustainable in the sense of, you know, is our next year are Liverpool going to try and, and again concede you know twenty to twenty five goals, or is it on it will next season will they be trying to get you know instead of let's say seventy five eighty goals they're looking to get ninety goals, you know it, has Jurgen Klopp tactically changed or has this season been essentially a bit of an outlier. In other words, is it just you know is will he just take the handbrake off next season? And I'm not sure. I for me for, for me to say that they he has fundamentally altered his tactical plans. I would need more fluency. In other words, I get the feeling that the season for Liverpool has been more of an outlier. I think when they got went seven points clear, and really their defining game this season was the Man City away. Is that they were seven points clear? If they drew that or if they won that, I I would have I would see them winning the title. I don't think Man City at that point would have. I think they would have understood that Liverpool the way how they were playing weren't likely to drop enough points and that then I think Man City would have been able to focus more on the Champions League. And yet even in that game they were you know slightly passive and in the end although you could they nearly got that equaliser it was ne you never got the sense that he had told those players to just go for it. And it's a bit like the first leg of the Champions League semi-final against Barcelona. I don't see myself. I don't myself see Jurgen Klopp as being a brilliant tactical manager. 
in terms of the X's and the O's in terms of getting a formulating a lineup. What he is good at is the setting the tone. In other words, he has everyone, you know, cohesive team spirit, everyone, you know, all for one and one for all, and he's able to get players to, I think, see their really improve. So, you know, you look at you know the improvement that Robertson's had, you look at Alexandra Arnold <coughs> to the extent you know, some of the consistency that's gone into Mo Salah and you know Sadio Mane they've they've all improved in you know different facets of their game but if you take the I think the Champions League final as well I think and this Man City game there's a pattern of where any sort of changes that he makes to the the starting lineup weakens rather than strengthens. So in other words, the decision to go with Gomez at right back, the decision to put Wijnaldum as a false nine at the new camp. I think they would have done better in that game had he sat there and said, I don't care about the result. We might take a hiding tonight, but Liverpool are no longer going to back down. In that we are going to put our best team, and, and the best Liverpool team is an attacking team. That is what, you know, they've got the front three, they've got the full-backs, they've got the midfield. There's no obvious weakness to this Liverpool team. And so you go with Firmino up front, you go with you know, Alexander-Arnold at right-back, and you go toe-to-toe. Knowing that if Messi has a fantastic wonder game, you might get a hiding. But at least, you know, you've everyone knows exactly what Liverpool are doing. There's a coherence to it, whereby playing Gomez, who is a defensive right back who hadn't played for months, was just back from injury, was almost as if he was you know, it's a admission of fear. It's an admission of we need to keep Barcelona, you know they can hurt us. And, uh, you know, if I put Wijnaldum there, he might be a, it put himself in a position to stop Busquets or, you know, maybe, you know, stop the flow of Barcelona's attack. And it didn't work. The thing is, is that, you know, right at the end, they were, in injury time, they were ragged. They could have conceded a fourth two or three times. There was consistently... There was they were so desperate to get the away goal they were you know completely ragged at the back, and on a different day they could have lost by fours and fives. Now the other side of it is that Liverpool were unlucky in that game to not have scored. They had two or three opportunities, but there's a um, I suppose a massive difference between, to my mind, between not taking your chances or not giving yourself the best position. In other words. If you who if you're going to score goals at the new camp, you need Roberto Firmino on the pitch in the key area of that kind of you know false nine number nine then Wijnaldum. Because in the end, for all of the you know tactical rejigging, it didn't work. You know, in the end, it was an absolutely horror miss from Usman Dembele, and it was a you know a couple of you know Liverpool's best chances fell to. 
Milner and they fell to Wijnaldum, who are not, by nature, you know, fantastically gifted goal scorers. And that's my my point is that if you look at you know, there's a real key question of what well, ha- have Liverpool actually improved in Europe? And I'm not sure that they have really. I I don't see them as being uh, you know in terms of away performances, being particularly defensively strong. They've lost in you know Belgrade this year. They've lost in Naples. They've lost in. Barcelona, they have been hammered several times away in away games under Klopp. <laughs> you know, in terms of you know, in yeah, they had Dortmund, they've had Villarreal, and that was you know in previous seasons you had the Roma away leg. In the sense that Liverpool are overly reliant on. You know the European the, the Anfield effect of basically throwing going all guns blazing to you know pull the, the the game out of the hat, and it's fantastic to watch. And I'm sure Liverpool fans will remember the the you know the Dortmund comeback, the you know, Barcelona comeback for years and years to come. But there's no that's still that's the same Jurgen Klopp problem they had when they got to the. Europa League final. It's a similar problem that they had the season before. This is the same problem they have this year. In other words, they are not really able to contain a great team away from home. They're not able to score many goals. They're not able to not concede many goals. And even if you take like the European Cup final, you knew exactly what Real Madrid were going to do. You knew that, you know, obviously you have Ronaldo, you have Benzema, you knew how they were going to play, you knew that, you know, if it was tight, that they would then bring on Gareth Bale as an impact player off the bench. And yet, when Mo Salah went injured, and I was in a bar with a load of Liverpool fans who I've, you know, got to know over the years, there was just this absolute sense of shock when it, you realised that he wasn't going to be able to carry on and that he was going to go off injured that you know, he'd had this wonderful season and that you know, he obviously had the World Cup first time that Egypt qualified since 90 and it was just seemingly all been wiped out in just one single blow of course you're expecting the fans to be shocked but it was Jurgen Klopp's reaction which was just the same as all the fans he seemed completely and absolutely shocked by it and I don't think they Liverpool ever quite fully recovered from that emotional blow yes they were able to get an equaliser but you almost got the sense that from that moment onwards that they saw them there was almost a, a, a and I know this is a very charged word to use when discussing Liverpool Football Club there was an element of Victimhood, because yeah, it was the classic situation where you had the sneaky, basically the sneaky bastard centre half had nobbled their best player, and the ref hadn't seen it, and you know it from then on, and also that he then you know nobbled the goalkeeper while he was at it, and it all just kind of fell apart. And I think the thing is, is that in that situation, that's when 
great managers come to the fore, great tactical managers, to basically work out that they still had a decent attacking outfit. You still have Sadio Mane, who has more pace than you know any of the Real Madrid defenders. You still have Roberto Firmino, who is this, who can do all different things. He can basically be a number nine. He can get headed goals. He can finish in the box, but he can drop deep. He's got creativity. You know, he is a hybrid of you know any number of players, different sort of attacking profiles. You still had, you know. A, a defensive core to that team. There are ways, and there's you know ways that you could have utilized the bench that could have put Zinedine Zidane not quite off, but you know made here made into it more of a chess game, and that's not really what you know Zinedine Zidane is particularly effective at. And so in the end, the the way how that game just panned out made it very easy for. You know, Zidane. You know, there was the catastrophic goalkeeping error, but it was tight enough that he knew he could throw on Bale, who would, you know, hurt Liverpool. And I don't think Zidane was put under enough pressure by Jurgen Klopp. And even to an extent, the, the Man City away game, I think there was an underlying fear that if Liverpool went out and played just full-on attacking football, that Man City could pick them off and that it might be a fours and a fives, like they had the previous season where Liverpool had a player sent off. And that the psychic effect of getting hammered would, you know, could really impact Liverpool, you know, the, the confidence, the emotion, the way how the fans were reacting. It was almost as if actually losing that game narrowly wasn't the end of the world. They would be able to recover from that. And so, what, what you can... Sometimes I'm almost tempted with, sort of when looking at Jurgen Klopp, to basically call him Keegan with a coaching degree. And that's not the worst thing in the world to do. Kevin Keegan, in terms of the way how he was able to, you know, mould a team in terms of and a fan base and everything else and getting positivity and going for things, that's good. And really what Jurgen Klopp shows you is that it had Kevin Keegan actually really focused on actually learning to be a coach. That Newcastle team could have, you know, achieved the same things that Dortmund did in terms of winning a league, in terms of getting to a Champions League final, and really achieving something, you know, much more tangible than what Newcastle did, which was, you know, burning brightly for a while and then spectacularly sort of imploding as and when Kevin Keegan's natural weaknesses came to the fore. But then when you're looking at... uh, Kloppism as a, I suppose, a theorem and as a style of management, there isn't as the same principle of, you know, the bubble bursting, and that's really what happened at Dortmund in the sense that, you know, once they lost that Champions League final narrowly to Bayern Munich, once they Bayern Munich have signed a couple of their players that. 
you know, Klopp wasn't able to recover. There was an element, the bubble burst. You know, once the confidence drained out, you know, his last season at Dortmund was, you know, a, a fair, a, really a disaster in the sense that you know, had they would have gone at, when, at the winter break, they would have been rock bottom but for a couple of late goals in um, the last game. Dortmund weren't playing, but the, the team that had they held on to a 2-0 lead would have jumped above Dortmund, Dortmund would have been bottom at Christmas. And while they did eventually recover, it took so long for them to get back to the point where it wasn't they didn't finish in the top four, they they finished just outside Europe, lost the German Cup final. There was no evolution. In other words, once you took a couple of those players out, once there was the I suppose the twin disappointments of you know, losing to Dortmund, sorry, losing to Bayern and losing those players, there was no plan B. And I think with Liverpool, in other words, Klopp's achievements in terms of winning the league and wrestling the initiative away from Bayern Munich was a fantastic achievement. But it was fleeting to that extent and that really he he had taken Dortmund as far as he could and so as a result and this is again a, a sort of mark of Keeganism in the sense that instead of ascertaining what went wrong and to see how you could create a system which is more tenable he just moved on to somewhere else and then recreated the same situation because really Liverpool and Dortmund, as I've said, have the same, you know, there's an element of high self-regard, the same, you know, negative emotions of your title drought, you know, inferiority complex, and and there was, a, it's a, I suppose it's a slow burn effect, in other words, from where Liverpool were going, and once they improved is that, in other words, once Dortmund got really good, you hit that ceiling a lot higher, you get a lot quicker. In other words, once you've you know, overtaken you know, Bayern Munich in a kind of one-off season, Bayern hit back by buying their players. Whereby with Liverpool, it wasn't going to be such a quick process. It was going to take sort of two or three years before they were in a position to be competitive in the upper ends of the Champions League and competitive in terms of the league. And there was far more, you know, there's a top six instead of really in Germany what effectively is a top two, maybe a top three if somebody else has a great year. So there's more room for, you know, in other words, there was, by moving to Liverpool, Jurgen Klopp didn't have to evolve his style of management and Kloppism as a whole. He just carried on doing exactly what he was doing at Dortmund with a slightly higher budget and more room for to grow and more room for success. In other words, getting Liverpool to qualify in the Champions League on a regular basis and getting them successful in Europe was more than enough to keep Liverpool fans happy. Whereby with Dortmund, once it became 
effectively self-evident that they were not able to compete on a year-by-year basis with Bayern Munich and as a result weren't going to be able to keep their players from either other European giants or Bayern Munich themselves. There was nowhere else to go once that you know, bubble, the clock bubble burst. It really, you know, there was nothing much there and that's, you know, again, similar to sort of Keeganism. There is an element of Kloppism being a bit of a, a sort of a benevolent Ponzi scheme. In other words, you, as fans, you believe that, you know, you are a huge part of what Jurgen Klopp is doing. And that you're fighting the good fight against the, you know, forces of evil. <laughs> Which has the wonderful point of covering up a lot of sort of Klopp's weaknesses in terms of not being able you know, you know not being particularly effective in finals. You know, there's always when he goes to a place, there's always a self built in, you know, excuse for not winning. In other words, Man City have more money on players, you know, Guardiola, you know, the Guardiola effect, or you know, there's always a, you know, in, and also if you look at you know, Real Madrid, oh, look at that dominant Real Madrid team. In other words, there's always a built-in reason for, you know, failing, which is not, you know, at Jurgen Klopp's door, in effect. And that really does, I mean, that's, in other words... And that Klopp as a whole, it, you never, with his style of management, you never get the sense of, you never get bad news. In other words, whereby if you compare him to, let's say, Maurizio Pochettino, well, Pochettino has, you know, has done very similar, similar things at Spurs. But at all times, there is the, still the underlying sense that, He's always been honest with the fans about the limitations and what they need to get to the next level. In other words, you need to spend more money on in the transfer market. You know, the club has to have a different mentality. They can't just be happy to be there. They need to, you know, in terms of the you know crowd has to be more into, it, especially in sort of big European games. You know, there's it's very much grounded in reality. In other words, we have outperformed what. The you know are the wage bill, you know the the transfer spending, and that you can't carry on doing that forever, and that you will have to you know. Whereby with Klopp, you never get that. It's always very positive. I'd, I'd say in this way, I I personally believe Liverpool would have won the league this year. Had they thrown the Champions League, they had I think perfect opportunity in that they lost a few games away from home. They just sort of sneaked out of the group stages, and if you look at it this way, Liverpool got to a Champions League final. The fans want to win the league, and you don't necessarily have to throw it. But you can be realistic in the sense of saying to the fans, what would you rather have? You know, we can... To beat a team that's, that 
that got 100 points last season that ended up with 98 this year. You can't draw your way to the league. You you cannot guarantee that Man City were going to drop points. What it needed was you needed everything to go right. And for a large percentage of the time, it really did go brilliantly well for Liverpool. But a lot of those games, especially a couple of those nil-nils, were after you know were the weekend after Europe midweek European football and he didn't it was wanting it all and I think therein lies an element of the sort of self-regard that I think Liverpool's a club and as their fans to an extent um, maintain. In other words, I don't think anyone at Liverpool wanted to admit that they couldn't compete for the league and the Champions League at the same time. And that eventually either one or both of them was going to you know, damage the other. Now, I think Liverpool have been fairly fortunate with the, the draw they've had this year in terms of a fairly poor Bayern team. Who, I think deep down inside, I mean, I don't think Kovac is going to... Even if they win the double this year, I don't think Kovac is going to be there next season. In the in the quarterfinals, they have Porto, and while Barca are a fantastic team, there is an inbuilt weakness that Barcelona have for away games. You know they've been hammered by PSG, they've been hammered by Roma, and now they've been hammered by Liverpool. So year after year. They have problems with second legs. There is a weakness to it. They are over-reliant on Lionel Messi. The signings that they've made in terms of the £200 million plus they've spent on Usman Dembele, the two, you know, on Coutinho, to an extent Malcolm just hasn't worked. They are still reliant on too much on Suarez, who, while his numbers look good on paper, I think in, you know, as you saw in that second leg... He wasn't able to, to match the pace of the game that you know Liverpool played. In other words, they weren't able to. He wasn't able to make tackles. In the end, he was spent. You know, he he realized his most likely chance of doing well in that game was trying to either injure someone or get someone sent off. I think it's interesting that when when sort of doing the research for this podcast, I I was trying to come up with what was the most defining game for Klopp at Liverpool and I, I really couldn't come up with anything I, I guess the obvious one would be you know the the Barcelona game but but then Liverpool have always had a, a great history of comebacks you know that was at, especially at Anfield that has been there since the 70s, 80s. You've got the Saint-Étienne game. You have the Miracle of Istanbul. I get the feeling that Liverpool are effectively playing the, the same football with just slightly better players. And that's, again, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm, you know, I think Klopp is still a, a fantastic... I think he's a good manager, and I think what he does is, you know, plays good football, he's respectful of the fans, there, there's a lot to like about it, there's, much in the same way when I did my Kevin Keegan podcast, 
there's lots to like about Kevin Keegan, but there are flaws too. I think both men to an extent. You know, Klopp wasn't able or willing enough to basically tell Liverpool fans that it was one or the other in terms of this season. And that actually this year was probably one of their best shots at winning the league. I don't think he's improved as a manager in the time that he has spent at Liverpool. And I think next season there will be an element of regression to the mean. I think they will probably have more injuries. And that will then be the real critical element of whether this defensive, different change of style, in other words, slightly more defensive, less, you know, pressurised in terms of the press that they do, whether that is actually sustainable or whether if they have some bad results, if they get behind you know, Man City, whether they will then push forward and start attacking more and being less, you know, solid at the back. The way how I think is best to, I suppose, analyse Jurgen Klopp is really to compare him with, you know, Maurizio Pochettino. We've done it slightly earlier on in the podcast in regards to saying that while his success at Dortmund was... You know, really the, the precursor for a longer spell of you know success with Dortmund because they now have a I suppose a philosophy in terms of buying younger players selling them on that that serves as a legacy to Klopp but it's a style that they had before Klopp and that they've used after Klopp and that while Klopp is probably the most successful recent you know Dortmund manager by the same definition, he had the best tools. He had the best players, the best squad in comparison with the you know, talented squads that Dortmund now have, but who are trending a lot younger, who are less experienced. And I think the element is, it, you know, and we then moved on and then compared you know, really what Benitez did at Liverpool. So that's you know, two Champions League finals, one Champions League win. You know, he's won a you know, league. He won the FA Cup and he took Liverpool to second, which is basically, effectively Klopp has matched that, but obviously they lost the League Cup to Liverpool. And while, again, they are presumptive favourites against Tottenham, there's no guarantee that, you know, come June the 1st in Madrid, that they will have a Champions League. And we've compared really, even to an extent, you know, Rogers' situation. Both of Rogers and Benitez came into much worse situations at Liverpool and had a harder climb to get to the top. Whereby with Klopp, he had a talented but slightly underperforming squad. But he had they had a new ownership group, who had more money than really Benitez had and certainly Rogers had, and a club that had had a longer period of success and was better positioned. In other words, yes, there have been some problems with Rodgers. They'd kind of gone off the boil once they had sold Suarez. But there was money, there was talented players there. And really, there was a lot higher, more to work with. So I'm going to now compare him with, with really Pochettino. That they're kind of similar in the sense that, really, if you're looking at you know Jurgen Klopp, he's had two fourth-place finishes, an eighth-place in his first year, which was partial season, and finished second this year. Now, Pochettino's had 
won the League Cup final, which they lost to Chelsea, won Champions League final, a highest finish of second, and, you know, third, third, fourth, and fifth. Klopp had a more impressive track record. He'd gone, to, he'd won in Germany in terms of the league, the cup. He'd taken Dortmund to a Champions League final, whereby uh, Pochettino had, te- you know, had the Espanol job, and then moved to Southampton, had some success there. So, you know, Pochettino had, n- you know, much less experience in Europe, much less, you know, experience at the top end of the table, and, you know, picked up a Spurs team that, you know had had some success under Redknapp, but had, you know, under AVB and under Tim Sherwood, had regressed. You know, this was an outfit that, you know, had only qualified for the you know, Champions League, you know, once in their history. Had only finished in the top four twice. So Klopp came to a team with a better history, a bigger appeal to prospective players, a larger fan base, you know, less disruptions in terms of the stadium and the infrastructure. He had more money, a better squad, deeper... Uh, the ownership with deeper pockets in that regards. And in comparison, well, what advantages Pochettino have? Well, the only real thing I can think of is that he hasn't had to sell a major squad player. However, even though they did sell Coutinho... Klopp was able to replace him with two record signings in terms of Allison, who at the time was a world record for a goalkeeper, it's now a third, and Van Dyke, which is still the world record for a defender. He was also able to expend, you know, expand the squad as well and extend it in terms of like Shakiri, Kaita, and Fabinho. In the, the intervening time period, you know, you've had the situation where Pochettino's only had, you know, one signing in three transfer windows, that's Lucas Moura, who was effectively a upper-end squad player. And if you look at the sort of signings over £30 million, you've got Cater at 50-plus, Virgil van Dijk at 75, you have Fabinho sort of 45 to 50, Alisson 60-plus, Marnie 30-plus, Salah 30-plus, Wijnaldum 30-plus. In comparison with sort of Pochettino, you're looking at... You know, his signings over £30 million is, you know, Davison Sanchez, about £42 million. But if you look at Sanchez, he's a promising defender. He'd had one year in Dutch football. He was a work in progress. He has, a, you know, an absolutely high-end ceiling. He could be one of the world's best defenders, but it's not guaranteed. You had Musa Sissonko, but even that signing, that £30 million... You know, sounds like a lot, but actually, the way how the contract breaks down, it's just six separate, sorry, five separate six million pound pay, you know, payouts to Newcastle. So effectively, every single year, we give you know Newcastle United six million pounds for Soko. Neither one of those were were high profile players. You know, Sanchez had done well in the Ajax team that got to the Europa League final, but they've been fairly well swatted aside by you know, Manchester United. You know, Cater, Virgil van Dijk, Fabinho, Alisson, Marnier, Salah, Wijnaldum were all higher profile players. You know, none of those transfers is oh thirty million pounds spread out over five years. It's not. And yeah, we're also factoring in that for an extended period of time, Tottenham played away at Wembley, didn't know when they were going to 
move back to the new stadium. The players that, you know, Pochettino's had developed players in the sense of, you know, sort of Harry Winks, Harry Kane, no Deli Alley. He's had to mould players, whereby I think with sort of Jurgen Klopp, a lot of those players have sort of come out, you know, been effectively come out of the box, plug and play players. In other words, he you haven't really had to do anything with Virgil van Dijk other than stick him in the centre of the team, give him the captain's armband and go from there. You know, much in the same way with Alisson. Yes, I mean, with Fabinho and with Cater, there's been a... It's taken time for them to get settled in, but that's in the construct of having, you know, a midfield in terms of Henderson, Milner. You know, there was, you know, Wijnaldum, there was already players there. It wasn't, there wasn't the pressure to just stick them in and, you know, it had to work straight off the bat. And that's the way how I see it. I see with each year with Pochettino, there's been improvements. You know, when he first came, he was quite inflexible. He had, you know, the sort of 4-2-3-1. And over the years now, he's now been able to utilise, you know, back three, you know, wing backs, you know, play, people playing in a hole, two up front. You know, there's always, <clears throat> and with, you know, the performances in Europe, you know, in the sort of first year in the Champions League, we got knocked out in the group stages. The next year... And if you look at it, there were some naive performances, but you know, at the same time, you know, they were learning. It was, you know, they were playing the games at Wembley. It it didn't come, you know, they were a little bit unlucky in the home leg against Monaco. They didn't take their chances, and they were sloppy a couple of times. But then, again, this was the Monaco team that got to the you know, semi-finals. And in the next year, then they were put into a much harder group in terms of uh, Dortmund, Real Madrid. You know, they, you know, Tottenham under Maurizio Pochettino are unbeaten at the Westfalen Stadion. They've won twice there and they played Dortmund four times. But in Champions League, they did lose a Europa League game in the sort of first couple of seasons of Pochettino. But in terms of the Champions League, when we, what we now consider, you know, Pochettino's Spurs team, not the kind of dregs of the ABB Tim Sherwood era where he had to get some players out. Anyway point is, in the Champions League, Tottenham have played Borussia Dortmund four times and won four times. You know, they're unbeaten at the Bernabeu, they're unbeaten at the New Camp, you know, they've beaten Real Madrid at home. There's, you know, they're unbeaten at the Juventus Stadium. They, in other words, with Klopp, they have played some lovely, brilliant football. And, you know, at times Liverpool have been a joy to watch. But it does come back to my point, has there been a sort of defining game? It's it's a little bit like the sort of shame worn criticism of Monty Panasar that, you know, it, it it's not that he played fifty tests, he played the same test fifty times over. A lot of Liverpool's great performances under Klopp have been the same sort of result. It's been, you know, hammering you know, Barca four 0 at home. It's, you know, that comeback against, you know, Borussia Dortmund. Even, I suppose, in the league, you'd say maybe not, not this season, the season before, when, you know, there's a potentiality for Man City to uh, go the whole year unbeaten. And they sort of raced into a sort of three, four goal lead. 
and eventually they, they won 4-3. It's a very thrilling match. But at the same time, Man City had a couple of chances at the end for four all. In other, it was the same thing. In other words, they were able to you know really smash the team for 40, 50, 55 minutes. And then it's, it's like the, the wave. The wave that then retracts back. And that's the thing. In other words, you've never really seen from this Liverpool team two fabulous, you know, in, in terms of two-legged ties, you've never seen them do two great games back-to-back. In other words, maybe the closest you'd have would be the Bayern tie this year. But even that, that's it's a fairly, fairly poor Bayern team. You know, they've got Ribery and... Robin, who are on the way out, Lewandowski is, is probably you know in the gentle decline phase of his career. They've got some relatively talented youngsters, but it, it doesn't quite fit together. On their you know they've done quite well in the league to pull it back, but even if they win today and win the league, it's still more you'd have to say it's far more on the basis that Dortmund had a terrible run of form just before the winter break and just after then it has been Bayern playing brilliantly well on their day in the German league they can be good but their you know their results in Europe this year have been relatively poor and even then you know Liverpool were relatively content to draw nil nil in the first leg and in the second leg they pick they pick Bayern off but it wasn't a particularly good performance from Bayern maybe that's me being a bit harsh but if that is their defi- defining European game, they've beaten a relatively prosaic Bayern team. Whereby with Spurs, it's almost the opposite. In other words, there's so many defining results. You know, being 2-0 down against Juventus last year and at Juventus Stadium and being one of the first teams to really not only get the draw, but to actually you know really silence that crowd. You know, there's the result against Dortmund this year when they'd won the, the first leg 3-0 and Dortmund went at them. You know, Dortmund had nothing to lose in that game and you've got the feeling that had Dortmund got an early goal, who knows what would have happened. They would have had a shot at at the comeback. But then they, you know, Spurs held out to half-time and then just after half-time nicked the goal and just silenced the tie. I mean, they wanted just huge amounts of pressure. Dortmund going forward are particularly, you know, Fluent, vivid side at the best of times, and then you've got the you know the whole comebacks against you know Man City and Ajax. In in each case, Tottenham had injuries. They had tired players. They had people who were playing out of position, out of form, and they've somehow found ways to you know. In other words, I mean, I I would probably will do a podcast you know discuss you know about sort of. Guardiola and some of the decision that he made this year in in Europe. I don't think he managed the tie particularly well, but all the advantages were on Man City. In other words, even though Tottenham won the first leg one nil, it wasn't a lead that you could sit on because immediately, you know, within three minutes, it's back to one one all. You know, Sterling has scored that fabulous sort of curling shot, and you know Tottenham were a tired. You know, didn't have a huge amount on the bench. All of the advantages were with Man City. They were at home against you know a, a team which is you know, 30 points behind them in the league. And yet Spurs were kept on able to come back. 
much in the same way that they did at the you know, Amsterdam Arena. You know, Liverpool have got better. You know, their performance have gone eighth, fourth, fourth, second under Klopp. But well, with the money that they've got and the players they've got, well, I, I don't consider that to be, you know, a, a huge achievement. I think if you've stuck virtually any, you know, decent manager into that position, I think they would have done well. And I think this is where you know, Klopp is, is a little bit of a bubble manager. He is effectively reliant on the belief and the support that the fans give him, which then allows, you know... And I would really say that, to, to my mind, that there's no narrative semblance with sort of Kloppism as a managerial philosophy. It's you know exactly what what you get. It's but to really have that for it to work, you just need good players. You know that's why he can really only manage exceptionalist clubs. You know it really can only be Dortmund or Liverpool. It's like I suppose the interesting thing is you can't imagine him managing elsewhere because I don't think there is a situation in world football at that kind of level where there would be a team that could sort of match that situation whereby you know whereby you have the you know the empire and it's always the situation where Jurgen Klopp is always you know Luke Skywalker I mean I suppose the only one I can think of off the top of my head was really you know Atletico Madrid but can you know how long can Jurgen Klopp keep the bubble going before it bursts? You can imagine a situation where, you know, if he wins the Champions League, that probably you know Liverpool would you know, will celebrate that. It's you know where Liverpool fans consider their birthright to be successful in Europe. But I think if they lose, and so they, in other words, they would have lost the league, they'd lost the European Cup. I think there's a there's a potential that the bubble bursts like it did at Dortmund, and that he you can't that the narrative then it forces Jurgen Klopp what to do next. In other words, you know he he might start the season off and it's well do you, are you going to be as defensively cautious? Are you going to ha- are you able to afford a couple of nil nils in? August and September, if you're working on the basis that you cannot guarantee that if you get 100 points that you will win the league. And so do you then just push up, you know, throwing people forward and going back almost to a little bit like Rogers ball? And what what happens then if you, you know, if you have a, a setback? And that's, I think, the interesting thing that really this season, there hasn't been any setbacks outside of really the Barcelona game. But even that, there was elements of, oh, well, we were unlucky, we had some chances. You know, Barcelona you know, just took the chances that they had and that 3-0 wasn't a fair reflection of the play, which was, was true to an extent. But that's, I suppose, the problem that I have with, with Klopp. There's always an inbuilt explanation for failure. And there was an element of, you know, just an element of pandering 
I think the, the Liverpool team and the way how they played this year has pandered to all of the worst, I think, instincts of, I think, the whole collective Liverpool fans. In other words, it was, you know, over-focusing on the, you know, Crystal Palace away game where they were 3-0 up at, with, you know, eight, seven, eight minutes to go. You know, the, the Gerrard slip. And the... You know, and also, you know, it almost played a little bit into the, you know, the Salah injury. When really what you needed from a manager is a systemic plan, i.e. to from get from, you know, year one, two, three, four, five, to the point where, you know, Liverpool still are playing the underdog card to an extent, when I don't think they're an underdog anymore, you know, the the Benitez Liverpool team that got to the and won the Champions League was an underdog team. They had you know, you know, your Eagle Bishkanch, your you know, Vladimir Smeezes. They were, had you know Neil Mella coming off the bench. You know Milan Baros. It was not you know the greatest Liverpool team that you've ever seen, and you know yeah, some of the players that he had, even the team that finished second. You know, um, Arbeloa. You know it wasn't the best. You know, deepest squad. You know, they were still reliant on Torres, Gerard, Xabi Alonso. Where this Liverpool squad doesn't have anywhere near that level of weakness. They have spent huge amounts of money. You know, they're they're you know they've upgraded the training ground. They've updated. They've upgraded the stadium. You know, nothing has gone wrong for Liverpool this year. If the worst thing that happened was they got took a bit of a hiding in the new camp. Was that then the next week they just did what they've always done, which is the traditional amazing Anfield comeback. But they, they, you know, they, they, you haven't seen a huge amount of improvement. All you've seen is is that the team play in a similar kind of fashion, and and I think in some ways it's almost a little bit comparable, you know, the success in Europe to uh, the success that Zidane had at sort of Real Madrid in other words both outfits have been very successful in Europe but without ever being truly you know, sort of truly convincing in other words the you know Real Madrid were really good in terms of winning the Champions League but often you know their league form would be quite poor <laughs> And, you know, Liverpool have had the advantage of playing, you know, in the latter stages, you know, Porto twice. It's, there's still an an element, a lack of, I think, coherence to Liverpool. And that even after a 97-point season, we're still really questioning how they're going to play next season and whether their style is really sustainable in other words with all of the cluster luck with the situation in the league I think Liverpool have have basically blown one of their best chances at winning the league because I I don't see at the moment where Man City are I don't see Guardiola leaving in the next couple of years I don't see you know the money that Abu Dhabi put into the club that I don't see that being pulled out and all I keep getting back to when looking at this is that there hasn't been enough growth. It just seems that they're playing the same 
style year after year. And if it wasn't going to be this year, what makes you think it's going to be next year that Liverpool are going to make that jump to winning the league? I just don't see right now how they're going to get 100 points without, without I think, Man City having to undergo a injury crisis or a you know a really massive you know season in terms of you know going for the league cup the FA cup and the european cup i suppose to, to really end this this podcast I, I think there's really a question that liverpool fans have to ask of themselves is that for all the positivity that that klopp has brought and all of the football and the great football and the happy memories Has Klopp got the mentality to tell you the an uncom the uncomfortable truths that you might just have to focus on the league, you might have to junk the the cups, you might have to actually risk losing. In other words, instead of doing everything right in terms of well, we haven't made a mistake. Whether there's going to have to be a time in which they do risk making a mistake. And whether they have Klopp has the mentality and the tactical acumen to deal with that, because really, if you're going to get a hundred points, you can't draw seven games. You can't basically give up four or five fixtures in the we don't want to lose this fixture kind of situation. And that's, I think, the problem is that really Klopp is creating almost a it is it's like a Ponzi scheme you, as. And where Liverpool fans are basically happy because they're getting the same sort of 2.5% back every single time for the emotional capital that they're investing, it's a bubble. And if that bubble you know, bursts, there isn't any underlying sort of systemic, systemic plan B to rely on. In other words... The real question is, is that is the defining games of Jurgen Klopp's Liverpool spell not the 4-0 at Barcelona, not the result against Dortmund, not these comebacks, but these 0-0s. You know, the 0-0 the, the at Everton, the 0-0 at Old Trafford, the element of n not being able to fashion a Liverpool team with that cutting edge that will risk it all. Because if you're, I suppose, expecting, I suppose, uh, a, a change in, in Klopp in terms of a, you know, plan B, I don't think anything in his managerial career up to this point has shown you that there is, that there is much more depth than, you know, the bubble. That you know he will the players' values get pumped up in terms of Coutinho being sold for money, in that the you know the players that are. Dortmund that then got sold on. Because for all of the, you know, happiness that Jurgen Klopp creates, there isn't a corresponding steeliness that is really the hallmark of Liverpool's success in the 60s, 70s and 80s. In the end, 
you do suspect that you know that a Ferguson or a Pochettino or a Mourinho would I would be able to utilize the political the political capital that Klopp has in terms of telling uncomfortable truths about you know where Liverpool are heading and what they're going to need to do to get to that next level of winning. And I think just to f- to finish this podcast off, the fact that you've got a situation where it's Klopp versus Pochettino is that it's a knife edge game. In other words, if Pochettino and Tottenham on one leg win the Champions League, I think it is going to be the beginning of the end of Klopp at Anfield and Liverpool. I think the bubble will burst and I think it will be very difficult for them to, I think, emotionally recover and to re-establish a style of football that will be able to compete with Manchester City next season. And I think even if Liverpool do win the Champions League on in June at the Wanda Metropolitano, I would suspect it will be a situation where, it, instead of being a, a, a concrete success on which you can then build on to then kick Liverpool on, I just see it as being the bubble just increased a bit further. It, it doesn't solidify it. In the end, they're still a highly emotional team that is in Klopp's image and has all of his capacities for excellence, but all of his weakness, which is always what people said of you know Kevin Keegan. And I think it's telling that I can't imagine Jurgen Klopp having managing Real Madrid. I can't imagine him really managing at Bayern Munich. But at the same point, I could imagine Pochettino quite easily at Juventus or at Real Madrid. There is something concrete in what Pochettino is leaving at Spurs, whether he stays on or whether he moves on at the end of this season. There's five years where, in terms of the the way how the club, Tottenham Hotspur, is has been changed forever in showing that you can take a Tottenham team to the upper ends of European football. You can get them to compete and solidified in the top six. Whereby with Klopp, I'm not so sure. I I get the feeling that any number of managers, you know, with the same, if you if you given if you swapped it round, and if Klopp had taken over at Spurs and Pochettino had taken over at Liverpool, I would expect that Liverpool would have won a league at some point in that time period. Whereby I think with Klopp at Tottenham, I would imagine being a little bit like the Harry Redknapp years. I think they'd play some lovely stuff, but there would be that weakness. There would be that element of Spursiness which you know as a concept I don't necessarily believe in but there is a you know in the at the heart of every lie there is a grain of truth 
and what will make or break Jurgen Klopp at Liverpool is whether he can keep the bubble going or whether he can finally solidify and in that sense grow as a manager to for Liverpool to really break the emotional trauma that really extends from Michael Thomas charging through the middle, from the Gerrard slip, from you know, the Benitez teams falling just short and the Klopp teams, you know, nice guys finish second. I'll leave you with one final thought. Could Pochettino burst Jurgen Klopp's bubble? Thank you for listening.